Welcome to Consensus Distributed from Coindesk, where you'll find live recorded talks and discussions from Coindesk events and more. Today's talk was recorded live at Coindesk Distributed on May 11th, 2020. This episode is sponsored by ErisX, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In this session, scholar Carlotta Perez delivers the keynote on blockchains and technological revolutions. She then joins placeholders Chris Berneski to answer audience questions. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to know that many of you have been inspired by my book, and it's an honor to be able to address you today in this annual gathering. Do you realize how incredible it is that we're in the middle of this pandemic and we can actually talk to each other thanks to the internet and thanks to this whole system? Not only that, can you imagine this without the genome? We wouldn't even know the genome in order to fight the pandemic. We're really in the middle of a marvelous technological revolution. And that's what I want to talk to you about. I'm going to talk to you about the social shaping of technological revolutions. And I will particularly try to focus on blockchain and artificial intelligence in this information age. The difference between revolutionary technologies and technological revolutions and the structure and impact of such revolutions. Then the question, are new powerful technologies enough to bring about a golden age? And finally, what can blockchain and artificial intelligence do to enable such a golden age? So let's begin with the difference. What's a revolutionary technology? It's a radical break with past practices which can transform one or many industries and products and lead to one or several new technology systems up and downstream. So it's a pretty important thing, a revolutionary technology. So let's take a look at one of them, plastics, for instance, which was, of course, in the 20th century. So it's a revolutionary technology which has many systems. Look at that, successive technologies downstream, the whole range of consumer durables, radio, TV, kitchen appliances, toys, games, textile, fibers, furniture, packaging, bottling, what wasn't changed by plastics? And then industrial supplies, of course, aerospace, automobile industry, yachts, boats, construction materials, anything you imagine, every single industry was changed by plastics. And there were also successive technologies upstream because in order to be able to use any of those things, you needed injection, compression, glow molding, extrusion, calendaring, etc., plus chemicals, assembly, measuring, control instruments, the whole lot. Many, many innovations, all associated with the fact that plastics were replacing practically every imaginable material. And yet, it was not a revolution. Lots of people, of course, thought that it was a revolution, and it was a revolutionary technology, a revolutionary technology system. Today, artificial intelligence and blockchain are promising similar feats. So if we look at these two revolutionary technologies with infinite uses leading to several technology systems, we can think that artificial intelligence may evolve as the dominant technology for extracting data and processing meaning in multiple areas. The same thing about blockchain, it could be the dominant system for securely transforming organizations from those of democracy to those handling property, logistics, money, and other socially complex processes. So we're talking about two pretty major technologies, uh, 
but neither in itself constitutes a technological revolution. So what is a technological revolution? It's an evolving set of revolutionary technologies and their interrelated systems. So in fact, it, it takes into account many revolutionary technologies and they're all interrelated and they all follow the same techno-economic paradigm, which is like the common sense for best practice innovation and for best practice even in consumption. So let's look at the mass production revolution, which is the previous one, of course, the one that was there in the 20th century from the 1910s. Uh, we have a combination of cheap oil in the, the essential uh, product of the whole revolution was oil with the internal combustion engine, of course, and then petrochemicals and fuel and electricity networks. So we're talking about pretty major things. So the systems downstream of this whole technological revolution include plastics as one of the many and chemicals, soap and cleaning, pharmaceuticals, agricultural inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and so on, changing agriculture significantly, construction materials, the whole lot. And then with the fuel and electricity networks, we have metallurgy, electrical industry, uh, road and highway construction, asphalt, and in the middle, in the core determining thing in terms of consumer products, we have the durables, the electrical appliances, and of course, the automobile, the mark of the 20th century, the core of the mass production revolution. So then, of course, we also have a whole set of technologies, systems upstream that have to do with oil exploration, with electrical and chemical plant design and construction, measuring control instruments, special chemicals, all that range, this enormous number of technologies are all interrelated. They're all interdependent. And that's why they're capable of forming what we can call a revolution. And then let's look at ours. Let's look at the information revolution that's been diffusing since the 1970s with the microprocessor. We have at its center microelectronic chips, which are in absolutely everything we do, computers and software, and telecoms and internet. Those are the big elements of this revolution. And then we come down to the successive innovations downstream, the ones related just, I mean, it's very difficult. These graphs, by the way, don't take them as a very serious organized thing. This is like a, a picture, a general feeling, a loose set of the elements that conform this revolution. So we have specialized equipment for medicine and military and all the rest. We have computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing, FMS controls, robots, 3D printers, office and personal products, future self-driving cars, virtual reality, all these things that are still to come, information, education, and telecoms, internet. We have commerce, banking, fintech, multimedia, podcast, social media, surveillance, surveillance, GPS, quantify itself, search engines, Wikipedia, satellites, mobile phones, all those things, and the things that combine the two, the latest uh, systems, the smartphones, artificial intelligence, big data, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, all these things are still developing. These are the later systems that are, have been now transforming and are ready to transform uh, production even more and the way we live and the way we interact. And of course, lots of successive innovations upstreams, 
from special equipment to firmware, software, frontier science, satellites, new materials, fiber optics, and so on. So let's look actually at technological revolutions now, their structure and their impact. First of all, it's interesting to discover that there is a regular structure of technological revolutions. Beginning with the Industrial Revolution in England, they all have a regular composition. They all have a cheap key input that changes the relative cost structure for all inputs so that people decide to produce and they are able to produce low-cost things thanks to the fact the existence of that cheap key input, which is a big innovation in most cases. Then we have the multi-purpose technologies supporting most industries and creating new ones. And one or more new infrastructures. It's very important to have an infrastructure in order to widen reachable markets with lower costs of access. So the first was the water-driven machinery with cheap water power and the use of canals. The second, steam-driven machinery and processes with cheap coal and railroads as the infrastructure. Then the third revolution was the revolution of steam, electrical and oil-driven machinery, cheap steel as the cheap input. So it wasn't an energy sector, an energy factor. It was actually a material. And then that allowed the worldwide steamships, telegraph and railways. Can you imagine telegraph? They had the cables going from England to the US and then all the way across the Pacific. The whole world was surrounded by steel telegraph cables and of course, transcontinental railways and the steamships. That was the first globalization. Then the fourth revolution, the one we just talked about, the mass production revolution, the mass production methods, the internal combustion engine and plastics, of course, with cheap oil and petrochemicals and the road and highway networks plus airports plus electricity. And our fifth revolution, Computers and software are the actual multi-purpose technology in all their variety. Microelectronics and information, both cheap, and then internet and container ships, perhaps we could count as part of the infrastructure, the internet for intangibles and container ships for all physical products. So each of those sets defines a different paradigm for innovation, general, a general paradigm to take best advantage of the new potential. The other common thing is that each technological revolution only comes together when the preceding one reaches limits. So the new things, the innovations, are aiming to overcome the limits of the previous revolution that's already having trouble. You know, we had stagflation in the 70s and the 80s, and that is precisely because of the limits that mass production had reached. So what are those limits and why were the digital solutions useful? First of all, we had these multi-layered control pyramids, this huge, lots of white collar workers and managers, several layers of management. And the digital solution was to have empowered flat networks because you could use computers to, to do all the relaying. Then the slow top heavy admin bureaucracy we now can have with digital agile organizations and of course, digital record keeping. The international hub and spoke structures where you had every single company was actually like a little midget bit of the big company. Now the complex global networks where you actually separate 
And it's just one huge global network, much more, even though it's gigantic, much more manageable thanks to digital technologies. We had the three-layer variety annual model. So you had to have the big, medium, and small, and so on, and you only changed every year. Now you have multiple customized computer-aided design products. Then the other limit, no more services to turn into products. You know, if you think of the electrical appliances, for instance, for the home that began with such important things, such as the refrigerator, the vacuum cleaner, you know, really pretty major things, you get at the end the electric can opener, the electric carving knife. I mean, there was just nothing else. What are we doing now? Thanks to digital solutions, we're turning products into services instead. So now we have, we stream music, we stream film, and the same with many other things. We still have many other things to change. So the transformations have been astonishing and wide ranging, but the social benefits have not yet come at the same scale. We are not yet in the deployment period of the information revolution. As some of you may remember or know, we have each revolution has two periods, the installation period, which is a period of creative construction where all the new things come. It's led by financial capital and it goes from eruption of the revolution through to bubble collapse or collapses. And then we come to the turning point, which is characterized by instability, uncertainty, and very much social unrest and populism. That's a very typical thing that happens. Political parties divide, new movements emerge. There is all because of the creative destruction, because all the jobs that are lost, because everybody, you know, life has changed for the worse for many people. So that's why some populist leaders look to the past, which was better. And then we come to the deployment period, which we have, I believe, ahead because we are actually at the end of the turning point. And this period of creative construction, which is led by production capital, supported by the state, goes from golden age to maturity. And once, of course, you get to maturity, then the next revolution has to come. So the deployment is when golden ages are unleashed. So we would have the golden age ahead at some point, if finally all of us and politicians understand that we need to organize the way that technologies, we need to shape technology so that they will really be for the benefit of everybody. So perhaps the destruction of the COVID-19 pandemic will have an effect similar to post-World War II, because it is after World War II that the New Deal was actually set up and everybody thought it was fantastic. Everybody accepted the role of the state and everybody accepted that it was good for people to have high salaries, for people to have a good life. Of course, we had suburbanization, which meant that there was a lot of consumption. Everybody was consuming automobiles and electrical appliances and frozen food and everything else that could be produced with that revolution. And that's what we need to have now. So very important, during installation, innovation is supply-driven. So while we're still in installation, we're inventing and proposing, inventing and proposing. So it's a huge experiment in the market. What will people accept? What will work? What's going to be profitable? What's going to be successful? We're in that whole process constantly. 
in deployment, innovation drives and is driven by new lifestyles which define the new demand. So in fact, once the innovations have been accepted, it's basically more and more of the same sort of direction. It's like a synergy that comes between the lifestyles and what's being produced. It's important to see then the different, that different lifestyles that are enabled by each golden age are what really lead to the new jobs that are able to cater to those lifestyles. So this sort of uncertain, precarious situation of employment, and there are countries where they have 25% unemployment, 15% unemployment, others have done better in different ways, but basically very much depends on the possibility of catering to the new lifestyles. So if we look, for instance, at urban Victorian living in the second revolution, the age of steam, coal, iron, railways, and so on, what we find is that there was a new urban lifestyle that was very different from the country style of the aristocrats. It was basically urban, and that was the big change that was made then. Then we come to the cosmopolitan living in the Belle Epoque with all the theaters and the reading and, you know, all these things, universal people traveling all over the world and bringing things. So that was the age of steel and heavy engineering. The first globalization created the cosmopolitan lifestyle. And then we come to the suburban family living, father, mother and two kids in a suburban house with an automobile and electrical appliances and so on. All those products were preferably plastic, of course and lots of new jobs in construction and services. Now, we are in the process now of learning the patterns of the new digital and sustainable good life, because the new life is going to have to be sustainable for our planet. So we are using information technology in order to transform lifestyles. And the question is, are the new technologies in themselves, however powerful enough to bring about a golden age? The simple answer is no. It all depends on our understanding of golden ages, of course. The first thing to understand is that income polarization, this whole inequality issue that we've been discussing so much, because it's been amazing. I mean, if you look at the data for the past 30 or 40 years, incomes of what was called the middle class have been stagnant and all, you know, the 1% is what's receiving everything. And that's not a stable society and that's not ethical capitalism. So the, the whole, that inequality is typical of free market installation period and major bubble times. So look at this. This is, we have two periods here. We have the uh, installation of the mass production revolution, and here we have the installation of the information revolution. In both cases, the top 1% of taxpayers, this is the USA from 1913 to 2018, to two years ago, uh, 25%, one, the 1% has received 25% of income, including capital gains. And look at this. When we get to the golden age, they're getting 10% of, of a big, you know, it's not like a little bit. It's still, they're not really receiving that much less. The thing is that it's being, it's much more wealth being distributed in a better way so that the majority of the population can benefit. So that is what golden age 
is about. Golden age deployment periods tend to reverse the polarization, the inequality process. They improve, they incorporate new layers of the population into a good life. What do we need to unleash a golden age? The context must be changed to create a win-win game between business and society. Only the state can do that by redesigning taxation, regulation, policies, and institutions to tilt the playing field in synergistic directions so that everybody innovates in similar ways and so that it all works towards a particular uh, lifestyle which improves the lives of the many. And how is that best direction? I mean, where do you get it from, from your head? How is it identified and put in practice? It's a sociopolitical choice among the many made possible by the new technology. So it's not that you invented, it's not some advisor or some politician or some civil service, no. This is actually a, a choice which is generally sociopolitical. It's actually in a way uh, defined by society itself, but government must not create, but rather intensify and accelerate one or more directions that are already existing trends. So it's accelerating some and not necessarily accelerating others. You don't have to stop them, but you, you intensify trends that are already, already there and that are obviously going in a good social direction at the same time as making money. Well, you know what? Hitler, Stalin, and the Western democracies had the same mass production revolution to shape, and they shaped it very differently. So in what directions was the mass production revolution politically shaped in the West? It was shaped in the direction of suburbanization and the Cold War. Sorry about my British spelling. <laughs> so suburbanization meant that everybody was going to have a car because you had to go back and forth and all the electrical appliances and the whole construction plus a shopping mall so that you could go. So you had a lot of employment created in this multiple, so many areas, which were now cheap land, cheap houses on cheap land, because of course, city land was very expensive, but suburban land was not. All you had to do with the car, which changed the whole panorama, was to create the uh, roads that would go to this suburban area, and then developers would come and do the whole thing, and people could then afford houses and could afford to fill them and to fill the refrigerators. And we had the prosperous boom of the 1950s and 60s after the war with high taxation and a very strong welfare state that really supported people fully. And government innovated with the same structure as the divisional corporations using their Tayloristic processes. So corporations were successful with that big pyramidal structure with all the divisions and so on, and with their processes of leave your brain at home and we'll design the assembly line and so on. And this was, you know, this was the way to do it. That was the way that success was achieved by business and later by government. So in what directions can the current information revolution be shaped? I suggest smart green growth, 
and full global development. Smart because it's with ICT, green growth because that's the direction, save the planet, and full global development because in order to save the planet, we need both, but also because for the advanced world to have uh, markets, it's very important that the developing world would need equipment which can be designed sustainably and so on, because basically the um, consumer goods, the mass consumer goods are being produced in Asia and it's not they're not coming back. And if they come back, they will be made by robots. So if we want employment in the advanced world, we need development in the developing world. So those two things would be the two directions that could bring a global sustainable golden age. And they would need fair, modernized taxation, redesigning the welfare state. We just saw how many people were in the gig economy. And, and as soon as we have the quarantine, we realized that so many people in, in Britain alone, there are 5 million people that are in uh, precarious employment. And of course, there is all the self-employed people, very often not self-employed because they want to, but because they must, because they have no other choice. So we need to set up a welfare state, which I believe should have universal basic income, agreeing with many of you. Uh, with government, of course, innovating, using what business uses. So we need frontier digital technologies. We need to transition to a fully digitized, multi-level and agile structure of government. We cannot continue having a structure of government which has all the limits of mass production and which was copied from the old model rather than from the new one. So after 50 years of anti-government action and faith in the magic power of the free market, COVID-19 has revealed both the resulting injustice within, injustice within society and the importance of government action to reverse it. Free market libertarian and stateless utopias are as flawed as the communist ones, I'm sorry to say. So what could blockchain and artificial intelligence do to enable the golden age? As happens with all technologies and technological revolutions, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and all the other information technologies can be used in a wide range of directions from those with dark selfish purposes to the most widely beneficial ones. We are seeing this problem already. They can be used to centralize, survey and control or to democratize and empower. However, in order to achieve this, we will need digital natives to have the idea of how we can regulate the powerful companies that the data the ones that control the data. So the time for such choices is now. And blockchain, artificial intelligence, and other revolutionary technologies can contribute to the transformation of our societies. They can provide efficiency, security, privacy, efficacy, and ease of use in the transition to a 21st century model of governance. The general functioning of democracy and the civil service should be modernized. The social safety net, hopefully including universal basic income, as I said before. An automated taxation system, privacy protected and fraud preventing. Secure health records for informed health research. City planning and reliable property records. An effective identity system. 
etc., 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 while delivering, of course, multiple financial and other services for private business and consumers. These are major challenges for entrepreneurs and innovators. Improving the world while making money is a much greater and more worthwhile objective than just making money. And business can only ignore inequality, underdevelopment, and climate change at its own peril. You can read some more about my work in those web pages and in Twitter. Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at stellar.org slash coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. And now an academic look at where blockchain fits into economic theory. Hey there, I'm Zach Seward, Managing Editor of Coindesk, and I am joined right now by a pair of distinguished guests. We have Chris Berniski, crypto investor, author, and co-founder of Placeholder Ventures, and the main event of today's show, Carlotta Perez, a highly influential economist and the author of 2002's Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital. Hey, Chris and Carlotta, thanks for being with us. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Good to see you both. Um, so as you all just heard in Carlotta's full 30-minute keynote umbrella, she's recently tested how blockchain fits into her research framework on economic disruption. I'm going to let Chris and Carlotta do most of the talking here in this presentation. But first, let's revisit a key definition from Carlotta's presentation. Evolutionary technology. It's a radical break with past practices which can transform one or many industries and products and lead to one or several new technology systems up and downstream. So it's a pretty important thing, a revolutionary technology. So let's take a look at one of them, plastics, for instance, which was, of course, in the 20th century. So it's a revolutionary technology which has many systems. Look at that, successive technologies downstream, the whole range of consumer durables, radio, TV, kitchen appliances, toys, games, textile, fibers, furniture, packaging, bottling, what wasn't changed by plastics? And then industrial supplies, of course, aerospace, automobile industry, yachts, boats, construction materials, anything you imagine, every single industry was changed by plastics. Okay, so plastics, the guy from The Graduate was right, turned out to be a revolutionary technology. On the other hand, however, you have another key definition. This is the technological revolution. Let's revisit this definition before we get going here. So a technological revolution is an evolving set of revolutionary technologies and their interrelated systems. All right, so uh, Carlotta, as we saw in your presentation, you say blockchain is a revolutionary technology, but not a technological revolution. That may disappoint some of our viewers, sorry viewers, but that's where we want to start the conversation today. 
Um, so Carlotta, since these are such big topics, would you mind kind of paraphrasing why you think blockchains are only a revolutionary technology? Well, you know, it's interesting to say only a revolutionary technology because that's quite something. I mean, blockchain would be in the company of plastics, as I just explained, or electricity. Electricity, for instance, do you think that's big enough? But it's not a technological revolution. Computers, that's another revolutionary technology, but it's not a technological revolution because a technological revolution is a much bigger thing. It's a combination of several technological, several revolutionary technologies, all the systems that they provide. And it also has a particular structure. It also has it generally has an, a whole infrastructure, but also a key factor that makes the relative cost structure go in favor of that thing, like now information or oil before, or coal in the, in the past, or steel in the mid-century. So it changes the relative cost structure, so it guides innovation in all areas. That's the other thing. A technological revolution transforms all areas, and it also, I mean, that means food, that means housing, that means mobility. So for a, for a technology to be at the core of a technological revolution, it has to be very important. But for the revolution to be a revolution, it's got to transform everything. And obviously, I don't think you're going to claim that uh, blockchain is itself a full revolution. So that's actually, um if you'd humor us, Carlotta, uh, what I want to see if we can make a case for um, that blockchains may be a key software fabric for an emerging technological revolution that will supersede um, our current information and communications technologies revolution. I guess being a millennial, I'm never satisfied, even if something is just a revolutionary technology. Um, so as a little bit of background for our viewers, who haven't read your book, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital, these technological revolutions happen roughly every 50 years. Uh, and we're about 50 years into the current ICT revolution with packet switching coming about in 1960. And I believe you define the begin, beginning of this revolution as the microprocessor in around 1970. Sadly, we haven't had a widely spread golden age uh, with these technologies the way we did with oil or automobiles or mass production. Um, and so where I'd like to begin here is, is it possible that we have a new technological revolution that supersedes our current ICT revolution before this revolution has fully matured and concluded with the golden age? Uh, that's a very smart way of turning it. <laughs> yes, it is possible, Chris. It is possible that this revolutionary technology could be part of a future technological revolution. The question is, is this information revolution, which did begin in 1971, is this one over or does it still have to have its deployment period, which is the period of the golden age? Do we still have it ahead? And I hold we do. It's still ahead and it's still possible. Of course, what you're saying is, is perfectly possible. Supposing, uh, say, take computers. Computers appeared precisely at an equivalent point as now during the Second World War. 
which is now COVID, COVID-19 might become the equivalent of the Second World War to bring about the Golden Age. So the Golden Age of the post-war came after computers were invented. Computers became very important throughout the mass production revolution, which is not about information. It was about plastics, it was about materials, it was about electricity, it was about automobiles especially. So all that revolution could also do with a bit of help from computers. So computers developed and so did control instruments and so did transistors and so on. And by the time that revolution was mature and needed replacement, they could all come together and then they brought the information revolution. Now, the problem with the information revolution is that the internet, which is the infrastructure, which every revolution has, we had canals, then we had uh, railroads, and then we had the transcontinental railways plus uh, steamships and so on. And then we had um, the roads and and electricity and airplanes. So we had a huge infrastructure for for the fourth. And the infrastructure for this revolution took a long time to come along because internet, which was, by the way, invented by the government, not by the private sector, was given to the private sector in 94. So it's only been around for 24 years. So it's almost as if the revolution somehow had two bits to to still come together. And every revolution is different. Some are longer, some are shorter. So it's not a question of duration. I could give you a lot of arguments why I think this one in particular, among other things, because it's a global It's a globalization, which the previous globalization was also the longest one. So what we have is a situation where it is very possible, and I think artificial intelligence also claims something similar to blockchain, the idea of being a revolution. The whole of the Davos crowd calls it the fourth revolution. They count it differently because they don't count by first. But anyway, lots of people are claiming because we know we're living revolutionary times. So it depends how you see it. But I would definitely say that what you say is possible, but the important thing is to understand the truth in a way. I mean, this whole idea, to have an illusion of being writing the future is a very important thing to move people. But then if you understand that the future is sociopolitical rather than just technological, then you understand that you need much more than something like blockchain in order to bring a golden age which benefits the whole of society. So I understand history is messy and certainly these cycles won't be uh, cookie cutter 50 year periods and uh, that everyone wants to be at the center of a revolution. Um, But pulling on this thread a little more, um, in your presentation you mentioned how new technological revolutions come about when the prior revolution is reaching its limits. And when I look around the world at you know, some of the antitrust uh, cases popping up against big tech or what I would consider mostly incompetent governments, both seem to be reaching their limits. Uh, do you think that these structures of tech and government are fixable within our current paradigm or do we need a bigger shakeup? Uh, we certainly need a very big shakeup because it's been too many years of this incredibly harmful religion of the pure market and government is the problem, which has created all the things that COVID-19 has revealed now. I mean, all the things, all the poverty, all, and not only COVID-19, 
populism is a very typical thing. Uh, you know, Hitler was elected. He didn't take power over. He was elected by the majority wow. because that because people are hurt by technological revolutions in the few periods. And what happens at this particular period we're living in is precisely that people are disappointed with government, people are disappointed with business, they're angry with business because they are, have lost their jobs, because all sorts of, uh, you know, they have lost their dream, what they had before, because people dream of things that are possible. And suddenly, if the situation changes so much that they lose the possibility of living better, that their children will be better off. All those things that have to do with your dreams, if they're destroyed, then you follow somebody who will offer heaven. So what happens at this time is what? First of all, giants, companies that are completely very, very strong and that have to be somehow regulated in order to make sure that they don't harm society. This is exactly what happened in the third surge at the end of the 19th century. We had all the big monopolies, all the big trusts. And what happened then in the golden age when Teddy Roosevelt came in, this is not the Theodore, I mean, this is not uh, FDR. I'm talking about Theodore Roosevelt in 1900. He comes in and what does he do? Trust buster, that's what he did. Plus progressive era, because he also reduced um, corruption. Corruption was so bad. That's what Mark Twain called the Gilded Age, meaning it wasn't golden. Right. It looked gold, but it wasn't really. So it's precisely that, thinking that government is no good, that government is corrupt, and you have to change it. There was also sanitation. The, the meat packing industry was horrendously, you know, really terrible. They even, the milk industry, they used to put paint to make it white. I mean, Thanks. the horrible things. So then you had to bring all the bad things that business was doing to fix it, plus improve the, the health of the workers and the, and the conditions of the workers and so on. So that's what was called the progressive era, just like the second, uh, like the post-world, the post-World War uh, golden age, sort of the New Deal. The New Deal, which, which Roosevelt tried, the other Roosevelt tried to fix in the 1930s and couldn't. And the Supreme Court was bringing down every law that he brought to help people. But after the war, everybody understood and then they did it. So now after COVID, I hope that we're going to understand that we've got to get a better society going and that we will have a golden age of the information revolution. And within with Within the golden age of the information revolution, I'm sure we're going to have fantastic things done by blockchain and by artificial intelligence too, yeah. So it sounds then like you're arguing, okay, we've been in the installation period of the ICT revolution and we're hitting crisis now. And after crisis uh, comes more activity, say, from the state to roll out deployment and this true golden age. Now, what I was hearing you say a little bit earlier with how computers were coming about during World War II and during the prior technological revolution is a little bit of, we can think of that as the seeding of the new default. Um, and so I wanna talk a little bit about the new default of what blockchains could be. So at their core, uh, blockchains are open data layers that allow all participants to access uh, and coordinate around the same data. And 
every blockchain system relies on a global community to store and sync the information that makes up the system. You you know this already. Now, almost nowhere in the existing paradigm. (laughs) (laughs) We've been working, placeholder as a whole. Um, So almost when I look at the existing paradigm, whether it be, say, you know, Facebook versus what its users see or citizens versus what the nation state sees, there's not equal and flat access to information. Whereas in a crypto network, everyone has equal and flat access to information and then agrees on coordination from there. And so I think of this in a way as the seeding of a new default. Uh, and so this, this re-architecting of access to information, my question to you is, you know, is this not enough to make the claim that this could be the new default of the next technological revolution? Because it feels so fundamental to our socio-political systems. You know, that sounds so nice, but I have a problem with it. I do agree, it's, it's a great new governance thing. But have you ever tried to organize a community? Have you ever it's tried tough. to organize any sort of group? Do you know what it's like to organize a group without a leader where everybody is the same? I was a boss once. I try not to be a boss. I hate being a boss, but I was in my country. <laughs> I, I was the head of a technology directorship in, in a ministry. And, uh, and I said I would accept the job as long as I could have everybody participate equally and so on. Well, I almost, I almost resigned. When trying to do this, I realized that without being a leader, I could not get anything done. So I don't know if you believe that without a leader, you can have a good organization. It sounds very nice, but I'm sure you've got to solve it somehow that this idea of having a sort of anarchic, stateless, nobody leads, everybody's the same, if you believe that, maybe it can happen in some cases. I have never seen it happen properly. And the hippie communities that tried to do things like that ended up in chaos. So I'm not so sure. I really think that stateless utopias, libertarian utopias are as flawed as communist utopias. Too much state or too little state, they're both really bad. So I think maybe we have to we have to see a place. I'm sure there is a very important place for blockchain, but I'm not sure it's in order to eliminate the state and and become like, uh, you know, somehow one thing that worries me about the libertarian ideology is that it's only for the strong. It's only for the knowledgeable. It's only for the powerful. You can't really have a, an a society where the individual is completely free and there's nobody trying to make sure that there is no unfairness uh, without harming many, many of the weak. And the weak are not weak because they are bad or they are incompetent or they don't try hard enough. It's just that the lottery of life has given them poverty, has given them the wrong color, the wrong race, the wrong whatever. You know, you have a lot of Right. Things that right. don't have to do with that. And you have to have somehow an authority, a leadership that's accepted in a democratic space where society is for all, you know? I agree with that. I, um, you know, Placeholder does get very involved with the different crypto networks it supports. And um, some of these forms of governance are very messy. And it's, um, 
when I think about a blockchain as a system that custodies and transfers valuable assets, I like to use that kind of philosophical abstraction and say, okay, we can use this for really good voting systems, right? We layer in privacy and potentially we could have much better voting systems, which are directly representing um, the, the constituents and, you know, maybe more granular breakdowns, you know, such that you can have the specific community that is affected directly voting on things. And, you know, there's a whole world to explore there that we're, we're very early in. Um, I want to actually talk a little bit more about the state because I, I know it's a key part of your current focus and initiative. Mm -hmm. So you said in your presentation that only the state can unleash a golden age by redesigning taxation, regulation, policies, and institutions to tilt the playing field in synergistic directions. And as we've been talking about a little bit here, um, actually one of your former researchers, Mario Law, who now works at Placeholder, and thank you very much for that. Uh, uh, he uh, he's fantastic. I he's hate amazing. you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he wrote a piece, which I recommend everyone read, called Blockchains Are Bureaucracies Parks a Lot. And he points out that blockchains are automating administrative infrastructure. And as I spoke about a little bit, you know, the ability to transfer and, and tally votes and therefore in a way able to encode the state. So I'd like to ask you, you know, do you see the possibility of blockchains encoding, extending or otherwise modernizing the state? I, I agree with Mario. I definitely think that it has it could have a fantastic role. There are things, well, democracy you mentioned already, the civil service in general could be helped by uh, these systems. Uh, the social safety net, I, I can think of, of uh, universal basic income being based on a form of a form of blockchain where everybody would be a participant and therefore, you know, it sort of almost gives legitimacy to that thing. And then you have identity also that could be associated with that. Uh, of course, taxes, it would be wonderful to have something that could stop people from taking their money to the Bahamas and yet using, using all the infrastructure, all, every, all the education, everything that society gives to a company that makes it easy to make money to, to be successful has to be funded, has to be paid, the roads they drive their cars on, but they take their money out of the country and don't pay taxes. So somehow to have a fair tax system, if the tax system were designed in a fair way and nobody evaded it, we'd have a much better society. So uh, that's another thing that perhaps, I don't know, I hope, uh, health property records, it would be fantastic also to have city planning and property records organized in a sort of blockchain system. I don't know, the uh, right. logistics, many, many things. So right. definitely, I think so. Not only that, I would say those challenges are much bigger, but much bigger than many of the business challenges that people are now facing. I mean, I would really encourage people to start thinking, can they help make an agile state? Can they help make a safe, non-corrupt uh, you know, system for all those things that the state has to do? We actually need young people interested in helping modernize the state because you know what happens? The state today is exactly the way that General Motors and IBM and all these companies used to be in the past. Uh, well, you know, that, that's the whole problem that uh, 
the state always copies the organization of companies, the, the paradigm, the way of organizing that's best, copies it later. And that's why mm. golden ages also come later when the state actually comes in as an agile. Well, in this mm. case, it would be agile. That other time it would have been divisional and everything, even though a very innovative state, because don't forget that it's the state that uh, got computers done. It's the state that got the internet going. It's the state that got microprocessors going. The whole revolution was done by government and then handed over to the private sector. So don't make, you know, don't have the illusion that it's the private sector that innovates and government is just a heavy thing. No, today the government is truly a legacy government the organization of government. We need to modernize it. And you have one of the tools. Artificial intelligence is another tool. There are other things within information technology. It's not just putting computers in. It's also changing the human organization, making it more innovative, making more agile. All those things that consultants tell companies, they have to be able to work, to work with government and make it attractive for young people. The challenges for young people that are really tech savvy. They can even think, how can we regulate Facebook and all these guys? My old ideas are, well, break it up, of course. Take out, I mean, why did Instagram, why WhatsApp, why do they belong to Facebook? They should be the competitors, they should be fighting. They're not, they're not competing. They are actually all swallowed up inside Facebook. So I think, yeah, break it up. That's my simple idea from my old, you know, dinosaur times. Is there any better way to do it? To protect people's privacy, to take away so much power? It's so dangerous. It's worse than a state, you know. So somehow new thinking, new thinking in terms of helping society. You know, making money, just making money. It's sort of boring. If you can both make money and improve society, it's much more exciting. Yeah, I think, and you know, we've talked about this in the past a handful of times around the bad rap, say, that the state gets within the crypto space. And some of this is because of the adversarial nature of um, really disruptive innovation. And you know, there's been a fair amount of bad behavior in the crypto space. But if we zoom out, you know, the state has taken on many forms throughout human history. And it's really kind of this connective fabric uh, that fills the gaps between what these smaller modes of, of organization do. And uh, I recently reread The Sovereign Individual and uh, another great book, maybe not as good as yours, but pretty close. Um, and in that, they make the argument that the economics of violence and then the economics of protection against that violence are key macro drivers of how we organize. And as we emerged from the Middle Ages into the industrial area, into the industrial era, we had to centralize society to draw from larger bodies of humans to fund the growing costs of aggression and protection. And so when we look at cryptography, cryptography really collapses the cost of protection of one's digital assets. Um, and so you could make the argument that a nation state will be less necessary to at least protect against that form of confiscation. And so, you know, from there, as we were speaking about earlier, you can see blockchains as kind of these global accounting systems. And, um, you know, there are, and, and this is where we get pretty amorphous, but the question I want to ask you is, 
do you think the nation state is definitely here to stay? Or is it one form of organization that has served us for hundreds of years that could eventually be outmoded? Mm. <laughs> now, that's a problem because, you know, to be against government or to be against the, the nation state. <laughs> that's true. I don't want to put you in hot I'll water. Tell you, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I actually think that what we need now is a multi-level government. We need to go down to the community, down to the cities, and give much more power to local government because we have this possibility of having interconnected things so that people can adapt the same sort of general things, but adapt them to the specific conditions of their area to make sure that there is wealth creation, that there is fairness, that is, you know, that people are making money while making life better for each, that there is housing, that there is all those things, instead of having them way far there in the nation state, should be down, down, down. And then you come up all the way up to, to global governance. There is no way that you can have financial global flows and then try to regulate them from national governments because they're much more powerful and they're completely global, as you will know. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And what happens when, whenever a government tries to regulate in favor of society and against unfairness and bad behavior by the banks, they punish the government and they go somewhere else. They have the power to just exit. So what do we need? We need everything regulated at the point at which it should be both regulated and protected and uh, all the other things that have to be done, you know, even taxation. Alana, I'm going to jump have- in there. Uh, this is this is a fantastic conversation, first of all. Uh, we're about to uh, switch over to the AMA section of this event. I've been jotting down notes. I'm really excited to ask you guys some more questions. Um, we're going to leave this portion of the discussion here for now, put a, put, a, put a placeholder on it, as it were, and we're going to jump over to the AMA shortly. You've been listening to Crypto Talks from Coindesk. For new short daily episodes, you can subscribe with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. This session featured scholar Carlotta Perez and placeholders Chris Berneski. It was recorded live during Consensus Distributed 2020.